welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast, brought to you by University College London and the NIHR in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello and welcome back to the Dementia Research Podcast, the show that delves deep into the brilliant minds dedicated to unraveling the mysteries of dementia and helping you to successfully navigate your own career in the field. I'm Professor Heather Mortyboys, and it's my pleasure to be here to host a very special reunion episode that's bound to be filled with laughter, insights, and perhaps a few surprises. So let me set the scene. Five years ago, we had the pleasure of chatting with four incredible researchers who not only shared their groundbreaking work in dementia research, but also gave us a glimpse into their lives as superhumans balancing career success and family life. Today, we're reuniting to catch up on the whirlwind that has been the last half decade, asking what's changed, if they stand by their original advice, and what new tips um, they can share. And I might also chip in with some nuggets of my own. Joining us once again are the brilliant minds that left us inspired and eager for more. Professor Tamrin Lashley, whose passion for unravelling the intricacies of the brain's inner workings continues to astound us. Dr. Gemma Lays, whose tireless dedication to finding innovative solutions has earned her a spot in our hearts and the annals of dementia research. Dr. Joe Barnes, the mastermind behind groundbreaking breakthroughs proving that even amidst life's chaos, scientific balance, brilliance, knows no bounds. And last but no means certainly least, Dr. Angelique Mafradaris, whose relentless pursuit of knowledge has taken her to new heights and inspired countless others along the way. So hello everyone. Uh, was that intro a little bit much for you all? Yeah. Why? Wow. <laughs> it was great. Thanks, Heather. Uh, well, now that I've given you that bit of introduction, maybe you guys can do some proper introductions for yourself. Uh, so Tamarin, why don't we start with you? Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Thanks, Heather. Um, yep, so hi everybody, um, my name's Tamrin Lashley, um, so I am based at GCL, um, most of my work is based around using post-mortem human brain tissue to look at the underlying mechanisms of different neurodegenerative diseases. Um, I guess a lot, you don't really think things change year in, year out, but having just sort of thought about the last five years, actually quite a lot has changed in the last five years, so... I've been promoted to professor, um, professor of neuroscience. Um, I'm now the research director um, of the Queen Square Brain Bank and just been appointed as graduate tutor of the Institute of Neurology. Uh, so a lot has changed from a work point of view. Um, my team's grown a little bit, which is great. I've got amazing postdocs and students that work in the team. Um, and in the last five years, the kids have got obviously five years older. <laughs> so I've got three children, um, as we heard in the last uh, podcast. Uh, my oldest turns 22 this year. Um, my son is 19 and the youngest will be 15 this year. Um, so, yeah, they keep me busy. Um, and I had the first two whilst doing my PhD and the little one while I was doing a postdoc. Um, so... Yeah, I'm very familiar with work-life work life balance, but I guess we can cover more <laughs> throughout the podcast. Thanks very much, Tamron. Yeah, you've obviously got a lot on your plate that you balance really well. Um, Gemma, can we come to you next? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yes, yeah, so my name is Gemma Lace and I'm based at the University of Salford. Um, 
My research is really interested in why you get junk building up in the brains of people with a whole heap of neurodegenerative diseases. And I'm also really interested in how the process of disease spreads from one region of the brain to the other. Really interested in little vesicles in the brain that carry all sorts of bits and bobs which can be involved in disease. Um, so work-wise, things have changed massively over the last five years. I now have um, a leadership role in the School of Science engineering and environment so I'm the associate dean of student experience which is fab for me because that's my favorite bit is working with students and helping students go out into the world and be passionate about science and um, research wise I've got different grants to um, continue my work so I've um, got some money from the Alzheimer's Society which is fantastic my research groups got bigger um, and I guess in my home life that that has also evolved quite a lot over the last five years as tam says the kids are growing up and they're growing up scarily fast and i've also managed to acquire an additional child now i didn't grow this one myself he's my stepson um but i got remarried so um <laughs> over the last in the last five years there seems to be a, a lot of change there but all all good positive change right thanks very much Gemma. uh camp joe can we come to you next Hi there. Um, yeah, so um, a lot has happened to me in the last five years um, in terms of, uh, of work. Um, so I, I work a lot with Tamarin nowadays. We do a lot of path work together, which is fantastic. Um, my work is really around the imaging side of uh, cerebrovascular disease and, and, and how that has a sort of interaction with Alzheimer's pathology. So that's that's my area that I'm really interested in. Um, so that's been great. And we've had a number of students um, go through um, uh, both Tamron and my supervisorship, which is fantastic. Um, and in addition to that, um, I'm now the faculty graduate tutor. It sounds like your role, Gemma, actually. So it's really about um, student experience and making sure that that's good within our faculty. So that's Faculty of Brain Sciences. So there's a, about a thousand PhD students and professional doctoral students. So it's, a, it's quite a big group of uh, students that we look after. So that's that's really good. And I really enjoy that too. I mean, there's a lot of problem solving for students and, and with the um, tutors at the departmental level. But I really like that. It's really, it's, it's good fun and hopefully making a positive difference for people. Um, so that's, that's work-wise how things have changed. Um, at home... So I've got two children. Um, one is now 11, so just about to start secondary. And the youngest one is seven. Um, and so I think the biggest things there are in the last year, uh, my eldest uh, got a diagnosis of autism. Uh, so that has been a big thing for us to deal with. And I don't mean that in a totally negative way. It's been really good to have that diagnosis to better understand him. And he understands himself a lot better. Um, so that's 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 one thing. And my daughter, um, who's seven, she's got um, quite profound hearing problems as well. So it was very interesting in lockdown having homeschooling two kids by myself where one of them shouts a lot because she can't hear. And then the older one doesn't like noise. You can imagine it was great fun. Um, but they actually get on really well. So we're, we're a happy little unit. Um, but um, yeah, so that that's that's us really. So lots has changed really um, for us both, um, yeah, for our family and also at work. Thanks very much, Jam. Sure, we'll get into some of those things later. Uh, Angelique, can we come to you? Tell us about yourself. 
It's great to be here with with all of you again. Um, so I'm a little bit of a hybrid. I'm a researcher, a public health researcher based at the University of Cambridge, and my work is looking specifically at the interaction between dementia and infections, and then more broadly in um, socioeconomic and policy contexts. So really, really enjoying that, and I'm excited to update you guys on how that's all going. Um, I'm also a public health doctor or consultant, so I work alongside doing my research at the UK Health Security Agency, and that's a national role very much about taking research and science and translating that into policy and action. So I, I really love that. It's my passion to work across the two and to bridge academia and practice policy. So really busy, but really, really enjoying it. And um, it's good for my brain as well because it gets bored easily. So that's been good. Um, I think last time, last time we came together, I was just starting my PhD. Um, and at this point, I'm due to submit in two weeks time. So that's been an interesting journey and kind of stressful at this point. Um, it's also been interesting in a sense, I suppose, especially from a public health perspective in that we had COVID in between. So I took a year out of academic work to go back into full-time practice to support that um, and be good to, to share some of that. In terms of where I am in personal life, um, I think at that point as well, when it came together, I just had my little girl. She's now five, going on six. So we've navigated babyhood, going to nursery, COVID, and then starting school as well, which I think has been more of a transition for me than it has for her. She's been great. Um, but so much has come with it and and so much um, uh so much change and transition, I think. So that's been that's been interesting, wonderful, um, but such a sharp learning curve, more than anything has ever taught me. Um, more on personal status as well. Um, I guess when I think we came together, this hadn't happened yet. But my partner and I decided to go our separate ways, um, which you know was tough, but the right thing for us. The timing was a bit off. It happened just before COVID, so I went into lockdown. Um, as a single parent, but we're now, my little girl and I are good. And um, we found a really, really good balance. So, so that's been, that's been good. Um, I wouldn't say it's more tough than what anyone on the call is navigating. It's just different tough. And, um, and that's fine. But I think it's, I'm really glad to be here to be able to share that perspective because it is different. Um, so anything that I can contribute um, be really, would be, feel, it would feel good for me. So I think that's me. Thank you so much, everybody. Um, so I'm just going to add a little bit about myself. So I didn't host the last one, um, but I'm Heather and my um, research is based around mitochondria uh, and trying to investigate um, if they go wrong, how they go wrong and how that contributes to lots of different neurodegenerative diseases. So Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, different forms of dementia, as well as motor neuron disease. Um, and... Um, I also hold the role of direct, faculty director of knowledge exchange and innovation. Uh, so very much thinking about how um, the university interacts with external um, partners, whether that be working with industry, whether that be uh, local engagement, national engagement, uh, international engagement, um, 
So that's a really exciting um, part of my role as well, on top of the research and the teaching uh, and everything else that comes along with academic life. Uh, and uh, then on the personal front, then I also have um, two boys um, who are almost 14 and nine now. So um, I may chip in uh, some experiences and some maybe some nuggets of advice from my own point of view as we go through the, the podcast as well. Uh, so uh, during the podcast, we're going to delve into the significant events that have unfolded in um, everyone's lives over the past five years that you really nicely just introduced. Um, if, if you guys have experienced uh, anything unexpected, uh, if your perspectives have shifted maybe from what you discussed last time five years ago, and most importantly, what in, invaluable advice um, have you got to share with the listeners today? So for listeners who didn't listen to the original show, then you can pause now, go find it uh, and go for a listen. Uh, and there'll be some uh, links in the show notes for this one. Uh, but for those of you that aren't able to do that, then keep on listening and we've got some highlights for you coming up now. Hello, my name is Joe Barnes. This week we'll be looking at a rather hot topic, which is how to manage family life and a successful research and academic career. We have Gemma Lace Costigan, we've got Tamron Lashley, and we have Dr. Angelique Mavradaris. So I'm Gemma Lace Costigan and I'm from the University of Salford. I'm a biomedical science lecturer. I've got two kids. I've got a seven-year-old girl called Eve and a four-year-old boy called Jax. So I'm Tamron Lashley. I'm a principal research fellow at Queen Square Brain Bank at UCL. Outside of work, I've got three children, um, Eden, who's 16, um, Ethan, 14, and Erin, who's nine. So they keep me busy outside of work. Um, yeah, I'm Angelique and I'm a clinical research fellow based at the Institute of Public Health in Cambridge. I'm a new mum. My little girl is eight months old. Her name is Venya. And this is a mini disclaimer as well because I'm still seriously suffering from the effects of baby brain. Um, and just to say a bit about me, um, my name's Joe Barnes. I work at the Dementia Research Centre, which is um, in Queen Square, part of the ION, the Institute of Neurology, part of UCL. I have a six-year-old boy who's at school, and um, a two-year-old girl who's still at nursery. I would say that this ideology of, of work-life balance is something that is up for discussion, I think. At any given time, it's very difficult to have what I guess people assume is a work-life balance. Um, me personally, I, I tend to fluctuate between being really wrapped up in work and 100% head in the zone and then snap out of it again so that I can hopefully be a decent parent. It is difficult, but as long as you stay organised, plans, I've got lists coming out of my ear, work lists, home lists, kids lists yeah. <laughs> that never get completed. But you just live with that and you just move on from day to day and yeah. just do the best you can each yeah. day, really. And don't feel guilty about anything because you just can't and you just wouldn't get away. So mm. I've had to be a lot stronger about managing expectations both at work with myself as well and saying that you can get to some things, you won't get to some things, it's okay. Mm. So it's just trying to understand and be quite open about what you can achieve with all your bosses, with yourself, with your partner, etc. Mm. And then trying to do your best to make it work. I was thinking, when was the last time I felt guilty? And I think it was um, 
last year when my son was Joseph in the nativity play and I couldn't go because I had to do a viva, which, you know, that's somebody's exam. I can't ask them to reschedule that. So I said to my son, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to make it. You've just got to prioritise. You've got to, you know, look and see what, what's going, what's most important at any given time and weigh it all up and, you know, make plans for when you know that you're going to miss something, just have something in the pipeline then. So if you know you're going to miss a play, for example, like you just said, then okay, so we've got the seaside at the weekend and we eat too much ice creams. So I had my son um, while I was at Salford um, and I was absolutely supported all the way through it. And I think there is there is a lot of, it's definitely an upward movement now towards talking and addressing issues associated with equality. So sleep as much as you can and get part in <laughs> And get find your find your way to a movement of people. Surround yourself by nice people and be nice to yourself. So hopefully you listened to those. I will also briefly just recap the main points. So all of our guests last time have become incredibly successful researchers. They're also mums to one or more children, and their top tips five years ago. Uh, included there is no perfect time to start a family uh, that you just have to roll with life and get on with it Uh, get as much sleep as you can whenever you can Uh, find your cheer team and lots of mentors Uh, even if you feel like you're muddling through you just need to take one day at a time there was plenty more nuggets in there as well so if you do have a chance to listen to the original show again I would recommend it but let's get on with today uh, let's start with a catch-up. Um, so everybody's given us a bit of an introduction there, um, but can everyone uh, tell us a little bit about what's been going on at Home and Work over the past five years and how you've been managing that elusive work-life balance? Quite a lot has happened, doesn't it, with the lockdown. I think we were probably quite good at multitasking five years ago, but now we can do it to an extreme we had to juggle work we had to juggle the homeschooling of maybe kids of different ages and I think um, I guess one thing that I've realized over the last five years even more so than where I was before is the importance of self-care and self-management and being able to just give yourself that headspace to connect to yourself to really think about what you need to do to keep juggling those various balls that we've had to do over the the last couple of years particularly and um yeah it's it's been quite a five years hasn't it and we've we've all had to relearn how we do things and figure out how to do things from scratch using different technologies with very different connections to people and as well as us having to do that with respect to our work and figure out how we continue to research and contribute to the research community you know via teams remotely we've also had to navigate that whilst teaching our kids to do the same and supporting our kids to engage with this new version of the world so it it certainly has been somewhat of a, a growth curve for everyone I think. Does anyone else want to chip in on on that those points that Gemma made with dealing with uh, time management and multitasking during COVID. Yeah, I can I can chip in. Um, I agree with what Gemma has just said. I think it's it has been a, a steep learning curve, but I think we can 
look at it as as positive, especially as working parents. It's sort of a now now we're all used to all these new ways of working and technology. I think it will actually be beneficial to those with children or caring responsibilities to stay ahead of or you know stay sort of competitive in the in the research field with you know being able to join meetings remotely being able to attend conferences remotely um myself i've just had major surgery having both knees replaced don't ever do that um and so i've not been able to attend conferences in person because my recovery has been really slow um, but, you know, I've been able to log in online and attend them all virtually. So I've not missed out on, you know, the scientific content of the meeting, obviously missed out on the, the personal interactions with collaborators. Um, but it's meant I could still, you know, keep my uh, fingers in in all the pies, um, listening to all the talks and everything. Um, so I think that's been a real game changer. If anything positive has come out of the COVID years, then I think from, from that point of view, uh, we can all benefit from the virtual world um so that's been a positive for, for me over the last five years double knee surgery not so much but virtual world yet <laughs> i think one of the downsides i don't mean to be the harbinger of you know doom or anything like that one of the downsides is you're kind of on call all the time um and i think that that needs management too so that as Gemma says you, you take care of yourself so I have regular meetings um, at weird hours with the US and and Australia now, and it's and it's fantastic, but it's also quite disturbing to personal life. Um, so it's 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 finding that balance um, so that to make sure that your workday doesn't just extend to all hours of the day um, is really important. I mean, I'm glad I I don't live in Australia in many ways because I think they get the rough end of all of those international meetings. It's always a difficult time for them, a really difficult time. Um, but that's 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 one thing that I think is a real positive, but it's also got its sort of negative things that you've got to manage. And I think that's it. It's a, it's about managing it. So I think I've got better at compartmentalizing things um, as opposed to trying to do a couple of things at once. I think there's I, I'm better at sort of setting times for doing things and saying, actually, today, if I only manage to do this apart from my emails, then that is fine and that is good. And that is, you know, that's that's being a bit more realistic, I think, and also self-care as well. So I, I don't feel really frustrated with my time. So that's what that's what I think I've learned. It would be really great to come back to the, the self-care point that, that Gemma sort of raised, but just on the COVID-specific point, it was, I found it almost, it was quite surprising in a sense. I mean, nobody knew what to expect. But what I found surprising was maybe because we were locked down and maybe because we were forced to take a pause in some way or some things amplified and others went away, I found it really kind of crystallizing what meant something to me and what was important to me and what priorities were or were not. Um, and because work was going crazy and a lot of our public health structures were um you know, uh, also changing. It was just really striking and clear um, just to see what are the things that really hold and what you really need to kind of consolidate and, and have strong all the time in a world that's constantly changing and and altering and behaving in such an unexpected way. So I found that just really good in a way as a as a moment to reflect because I think with most people you never get that time 
to reflect. We're always running from one thing to the next. But that experience and that time really forced me to think about some things. And even though I don't always get to to kind of put them into practice and action on a day-to-day basis, a lot of that has stayed with me and it's changed the way that I kind of approach and, and think about what I want to be as a as a parent and as a scientist and and as a woman. So yeah, really interesting things that came from a really bizarre experience. Yeah, so so I would just echo and I think this will bring us back round to the self care point um that Gemma raised and Angie that you wanted to go back to. I think there's there's a there's a lot of positives that I would take from that experience, which some of which you've raised, but I I would say as Joe had raised, um, I think afterwards, when then when then things started to open up and started to get back to normal, and kids' activities started up again as well, uh, and so then all of a sudden there was all of the activities that have there have been before. Um, uh, in addition to this expectation that you're always on because you can join things virtually, um, that you know not to make it usual that when the kids get up. Mummy's downstairs working on her laptop on a call and has been doing that since 4am. And then when the kids go to bed, Mummy's still there on her laptop working. So I think that that um, is something which which is something that I've had to sort of make sure I take time and manage myself. Um, and I think that comes to, to the point that Gemma started off on, which maybe we can just circle back to now and get each of you to give some perspectives on, um, is actually you know, managing your successful career, managing your family but taking the time out to have some self-care as well. Um, so maybe if each of you can, can uh, give us a comment and discussion on that. I'm happy to go first. Yeah, the, the self-care thing is, it's essential. You can't do the juggling. You cannot look after your teams, your students and yourself, your families, if you don't just take that breathing space to step back and, and appreciate that your self-care might look very different to other people's self-care. You do what you need to do and experiment with what works for you and, you know, what what doesn't work. I, I remember in, in lockdown, I kept seeing people who were developing quite new and interesting hobbies. And, you know, not everyone had to learn German or learn how to play a flute in lockdown because that was what people seemed to be doing. And I know that you know, there were some times where I felt really in control and on it and I was doing Joe Wicks and juggling the kids' stuff in the meetings. And then other times I was in the downstairs toilet, angry, eating custard creams with the door shut, desperately hoping everyone would just leave me alone for a minute. And that, and I think through that process, that ability to set those boundaries to protect your own headspace and protect when you were on and when you were off and manage the expectations of others. I think we have evolved um, substantially since we went went to the new normal where, yeah, we do interact via Teams and we do attend, you know, in-person activities as well. But managing that, I think we've all learned from our what worked for us in COVID and what didn't and, and try, and I think that's where it, the effort needs to be is right. We need to think about that from our own different perspectives and what works for our families. And our families are really unique and the needs of our children are very unique and the needs of us as individuals is very unique and putting that in together into a recipe that works for us and allows us not just to 
to survive. And I don't like the term work-life balance, really, because it it almost puts on a little bit of a, a vibe that it's a struggle. And I remember doing a talk many years ago where I, I spoke about that. And afterwards, I thought, I shouldn't have used the word struggle. We shouldn't be surviving. How do you survive a PhD? How do we survive as a scientist? It's a, I don't like the, we shouldn't be surviving anything. We should be embracing it. We should be living it. We should be loving it. And and learning how to set those boundaries to protect our time and that precious time with our families and the precious time with our students and our teams and making it a joy rather than something that we need to survive. Yeah, it's finding a way to thrive, isn't it? I think that's it. It's it's that yeah. I think during lockdown, it, at times it definitely was survival. It was just trying to get through. Um, uh, and, and my partner was not here because of his work he had to be out so you know when you're by yourself with your children and also trying to work at other weird times of the day um it it's it made me feel very uncomfortable at times actually and not not i i kind of you lose perspective of yourself but in doing that i think it's quite a helpful experience in retrospect because then you know that you cannot go there again it's not somewhere you need to be and finding that place where you need way where you can actually enjoy things is really crucial it's really crucial to being able to maintain a career for however many decades before we before we retire so um yeah are we going to do a retirement one by the way <laughs> we should schedule it in I guess for me, I never really thought about um, sort of self-care through COVID um, because my youngest has got quite severe additional needs and she was diagnosed type 1 diabetic at the beginning of lockdown as well. So that was a a steep learning curve um, with working out carb ratios, insulin ratios, et cetera, et cetera. She's three years in now, but I think we're still learning all about diabetes. Every day is different from from the previous one. Um, I think for me, my, my sort of, thinking about my self-care hit after my major surgery and I had to put time in for myself and my rehab to be able to walk again because I just lost the ability to to balance and walk um so I think having such a an amazing home team with my kids and my husband just seeing them support me taking me to rehab because obviously I couldn't drive and just building myself back up from hitting a brick wall physically and mentally that I think for me it's that the last sort of nine months of the period that now you know I do put my exercise and my rehab before my work Um, I schedule those in before any meetings (laughs) so I make sure I go to hydrotherapy to, to get myself back up and running but yeah that's it's been a hard slug and I now realize that you know kids need my time as well um but that's only over the last nine months I guess we just we just carried on 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 sort of the conveyor belt during COVID to make sure my youngest was supported with her um sort of lessons and teaching which was incredibly difficult because she couldn't go to school and access all the the special needs teachers but um yeah, I, I would say we did survive COVID, but now we have, do have a better work-life balance um, due to my surgery, which <laughs> if there's any benefit from that, then let's put that in place, So, which is good. One of the reasons why I really wanted to come back to the self-care 
point is because when I first kind of started thinking about it, and, and it's strange because you, maybe because I went from sort of baby zero to now five, six, and the stages and needs have changed, my kind of role and the way I respond to them has changed and transitioned so rapidly as well. So I, I catch myself reflecting on these things a lot. And the minute I think I've got it clocked, it changes again. And I've got to reassess and kind of repackage myself and reorientate myself. But um, one of the things that, that kind of just gets me often when I do think or um, do self-care is is the struggle with maternal guilt. And, you know, that's something we all feel and I feel it a lot. And, and it's it's difficult to kind of let go. And I often sort of go from thinking I'm doing really well in one domain and then all the others are completely suffering. So whether it's maternal gift, guilt or not performing as well as you can in a job or having to sort of leave something um, unfinished where you normally would have perfected something or delivering a lecture that's not as great as it could have been because you were up all night or, you know, that that balance, which again, I find a tricky word because I feel, you know, balance kind of is a picture of everything going well at the same time. And we don't tend to sort of see that in a longer term way. Things ebb and flow and come and go and change. But overall, it's it's that sort of overall balance that, that I feel is important. Um, but what I think I've come to in the past five years, which has been useful for me, is going from a place of, I should be doing self-care, I should be doing this, I need to be doing this. And so many people are doing so many things, and there's so many examples of what you should be and need to be. Um, it's been a good period for me to think about well, what really works for me. And I think, Gemma, you said it, that you know self-care looks different for everyone. Um, at thinking about what that kind of needs to look like for me and my little girl, and then being confident and believing in that that's what's right for us. And a colleague actually said it really well um, the other day. She said, uh, just remember, like, you're running your own race. It doesn't matter what others are doing. It doesn't matter what social media is telling you, etc. It's It's your race and your priorities and, and the things that work well for you. And I can't say I always kind of hold that, but I'm really trying to because that's kind of what, what keeps me in balance is thinking, yeah, these are the things that are good for us and, and good for me and good for her. Um, and I keep those kind of at my, my center. So whether it's it's running or, or going to work or helping with homework or um, girls' night with her, watching mermaids and um, having chips, it's, you know, it's that balance that ends it floats um, and that feeling good that and being kind to yourself um, about doing the best you can within your priorities and what's important to you. And it's a really long race. I think that's the thing. It's not, you know, it's not a race that you can just say, well, I can get to this point and then I'll be fine. It, I'll just keep bashing and bashing and bashing away at stuff because it, it's, it's years and years and years. And, and that's why you just can't, you can't keep it at that, that really high level all the time across everything you do it has to be you have to keep sort of checking yourself and making sure that things are actually okay uh, and 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 being kind to yourself absolutely 100 percent. and our needs change the needs of our kids change our careers change and so you know that that term balance again it's not really but it's, a, it's more of a wobble and it will wobble in different directions and i think once you accept it's always going to be a wobble but so long as you're happy with that wobble and 
you know that you're not going to fall off that's fine because you know as we take as your careers change and as you take on different projects and you know get more kids or get more responsibilities at work everything will constantly need to be reshuffled and reorganized and you you constantly need to evaluate what's going to work given your changing circumstances i think there were there were periods of in lockdown where things did stay a little bit still and so there was a lot more time for reflection but then as we came out of lockdown things were very rapidly evolving and we had to be become very adaptable and responsive and that adaptability and responsiveness to the to the ever-changing climate made us more resilient and we shouldn't forget that and we see that in our kids as well is actually more resilient than we give ourselves credit for and we shouldn't forget that and when we do have those wobbles that come with having a house full of children or a big mad dog in my instance as well is that we know that we can adapt and we're good at it and it'll be all right we just need to keep at it you know tam's a classic example of someone who just you know absolutely keeps at it and you know your your surgeries that you had this year tam it's that's that's a massive thing to go through and then to to still be doing all the amazing stuff you do is just lesser from here I like what you said, Gemma, about embracing as well, because it's we should embrace the wobble because the wobble is sometimes like it's good. It keeps us on our toes. It's healthy. The wobble makes you kind of question and and think and, you know, reevaluate in a sense. So, yeah, I'm totally going to go for embracing the wobble. The new slogan for our podcast, embrace the wobble. <laughs> it's the wobble. <laughs> I wonder whether... Um, so so you, you talked about in the last podcast the maternal guilt um which angela you just mentioned there uh, and you also talked about talked about the you know you need to find your own way that it's not the same as your what works for you doesn't work for everyone else so i wonder whether um i'm going to put each one of you on the spot here have you got one tip or strategy that you have found that you've managed to adopt that works well for you um, and perhaps other people can try that for themselves and see whether it works well um, for them. I think for me, it's actually um, managing my expectations much better so that I'm not so frustrated if I can't get stuff done. That That's the biggest thing that I think I've learned. So actually, yes, I've got a list that's extremely long of things that I need to get done, but actually having one thing that I do in a day and if I tick that off that's fantastic um I've heard people talk about tada lists as well as to-do lists where you have a list of all the things you've done recently and I think that that's that is good and it can it can spur you on because if all you're looking at is the things that you need to do then that that can sometimes be a bit much um so I for me it's just managing my expectations about what I can realistically achieve um, knowing that I'm going to be interrupted um, in a particular day, I think that, yeah, that's what I have learned. I mean, it could be, it's a bunch of things, but um, I think the one maybe I want to uh, come back to is the having a tribe around you, um, people around you that lift you up, that bring joy into your life, that celebrate you, that are around you to to support you and love you and keep you sane or shake you when you need to be. Um, I think I've got an amazing 
group of people around me and I don't know how I, I could kind of do things without them. And it's really easy to sort of get sucked in to your day-to-day -day and, and doing what you kind of need to do. But I think having, for me, certainly having those people that just bring so much joy and delight and, and bring me back to that when I might lose it is is a lifesaver. So definitely my top four. I think for me, it would have to be keep it, trying to keep everything in perspective. I don't always do it, but um, my PhD supervisor, if I was having a bit of a rant because things weren't going right or processes weren't working or whatever, he would just come back to, we are just a mere blip in the whole atmosphere. <laughs> just bring everything back to perspective that, you know, even though we might think think things are, you know, huge deals or whatever we've got to sort out, but if you break things down and, you know, put it into perspective, then we can we can work through everything and we can get things done. So and yeah, just keeping keeping that realization that, you know, it may not be such a big deal after all. Um and like Angelique says, having having your team um, I couldn't do anything of what I'm doing without my husband and the kids being super supportive of what I do. Um, and I would like to try and work to what Joe said, but I don't always. <laughs> I get frustrated with my to-do lists. But I could try. I could try and work on that one. Gemma, do you have a top two? I think what what everyone else has said are really fantastic points. Um, so I think I'll bring it bring it back to that that one about self care and securing your own oxygen mask before you start worrying about everyone else's because you know if you do give yourself that little bit of space to look after yourself you're just going to be so much more productive at work you're going to be such a happier more enthusiastic mum and partner and it's it's just a little bit of energy putting into setting those boundaries and protecting yourself so that you can be the best version of yourself. And often people focus on um, the things that they absolutely need to get done that are on the to-do list and they, f they forget about their, their professional development and um, making sure that there is time for that to give you self-space space to grow as well not just to recover but also right okay so what am I doing to make myself better and stronger and wiser and smarter and kinder and just investing in yourself and that can be part of that self-care package it doesn't have to be all yoga and bubble baths it can be right you know what I'm gonna sit and I'm gonna put myself on a course I'm gonna read a, a book I'm gonna surround myself with really creative intelligent positive women who are going to make me feel good about myself and enable me to have a good laugh and all that forms part of of what we would consider of self-care as well so I'll, I'll i'll keep it with the stick to the self-care make space for yourself um look after yourself and then you'll be just a better human all around brilliant well i'm gonna um change tack slightly um for the next question um and go more on to the um women in academia side of things. So there's been a great deal of progress made in attracting more women into sciences. Um, a, a recent ARUK um, publication last year showed that women now occupy more than 60% of research positions. Yet at the current rate, um, we won't have equality in senior positions or professorships until almost 2050. 
Uh, and so one of the reasons for this could be the leaky mid-career stage pipeline. Uh, and I just wondered if I could get each of your views on on this and what you think can be done about it so that we can get to um, that, uh, that goal uh, earlier than 2050. I think we touched a little bit this uh, about this previously how we've seen some improvements as a as a consequence of covid and you know conferences you can now engage remotely if you've got younger children you can you can still attend but i think there's there's a, a huge amount of what we've got a huge way to go with respect to making work truly flexible and truly inclusive there's been a lot of effort over the last decade, I would say, at doing some of the more box ticking activities, but we need to make these senior positions more attractive to, to young talent. And we need to be really doing some genuine work to kick down the barriers that are stopping young, talented women from applying for the more senior roles because of fear of success. This is where oh, if I'm successful, people will think I'm a different person and they will think this about me, you know, gosh, how will my world change? Fear of failure, fear of getting it wrong, fear of judgment, fear of the impact. You know, if we can address that fear and do more work with with our, you know, younger community to address that fear, to get rid of those to, to, and to identify the barriers and kick them down, not just put a blanket over it and try to cover them up, then I think that that will help us get, more people applying in the first case to these positions and then it's about having that strong mentorship and support provision once people are in those positions as well um i can hop in uh, so again so much we could say here um i think for me being advocates for, the, for change is a huge one I think there's still a long way to go in terms of infrastructure, perceptions, clearly. Um, but I think part of it is because we still, we don't understand a lot of the challenges. We don't talk about a lot of the challenges. We we just get on with things um, and we just do it because we're, we're good at it and we're built to do it. Um, but I think being able to to talk more about how things might need to change and how we can do better is so important, not just in terms of driving change and and thinking about solutions, but also in terms of inspiring, inspiring other women about, you know, what, what it could look like um, and what a different world might look like. So I, for me, I know we're, you know, we're busy. We've got way too much on. We've got zero time. But for me, this is something that, that I've prioritize because I, I feel it's important and I want to be part of a change. You know, so many women have done it to get us to where we are. And I just feel there's so much more that we can contribute to that. Um, I'm a, a a mentor for women in STEM at my university and on a diversity panel in my, my workplace as well. And I can tell you it's it's part of, I think, one of the most key, one of the most enriching sort of aspects of my life where I feel like, yes, we're moving forward and, and I'm part of that. So for me, I think attaching ourselves to movements like that and, and you know, it, giving the insights that we're giving here um, and inspiring is, is really important. I think for me, it's that's why I sort of took on the graduate chooser role at the Institute of Monogy is to 
I think I was in a in a privileged position myself of having such a supportive PhD student, boss, mentor. I actually share an office with him now, even though he retired 10 years ago, but he still works and we still collaborate. Um, I think to, to see how other students, sort of the, the ordeal some students have during their PhDs and as post early postdocs is horrifying to me that, you know, people don't have the same chance that I had and that supervisor teaching you a skill uh, that has, you know, stood me in good stead for, 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 for my career moving forward. Um, and what I'd like to do as the graduate tutor is, is provide students with that platform that they can sort of springboard onto the next next job, next role, whether that is in academia or whether that's outside of academia, but to champion them and give them the support needed for them to go on to the next steps. I mean, we have, we have students that are having inadequate supervision um, and that needs to change. I think if we can change that and give them the platforms they need to, to know that they, they can do the next steps, they are able to do the next steps and they're able to move on to whatever careers they want to move on to, I think is is vitally important. And as Angelique said, we, we literally have no time, but if we can, you know, plant a seed in one person's head that can go on to the next level, I think we, we need to do that. Um, purely, you know, some of the mentorship that I've had, I need to pass that on and, and pass that forward to the next generation. So, do you anything that you want to add? I think you know, following on from what Tamron said, there, it's it's about the quality of experience that uh, the younger generation coming through has, whether they're a PhD student or a postdoc. It's it's ensuring that they do have opportunities and they are listened to. Um, you know, when you're in a tutor role at a university and is similar to Gemma's role you must hear lots of poor experience that goes on and hopefully you're hoping that that's the worst end of things and actually most people have a really good experience but we are still seeing people leave and I I, I work on an EDI panel as well within within our institute and we've seen people leave the parents and carers group because when they've come back from you know mat leave their projects changed and 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 things like that which which sort of push doesn't push them out but there's no reason to stay and i think that that's it it's making sure that there are you know really good destinations for people within academia and and even professional services that support academia to make sure that um that people can see themselves in those roles but but they're actually you know really supported all the way through um, a lot of the work that we've done as as well has been on minimising the impact that going on carers leave actually has on a career. It's going to have some impact. It can't have no impact whatsoever. But making sure it's not disproportionate to the time you take off, um, so that you know you don't, for example, when you're pregnant, it's, you're obviously pregnant. People don't give you projects and so forth, and then you're away for up to a year potentially. And then when you come back, nobody's nobody's giving you projects again or interacting with you. You know, that that could be one year off, but you're actually you have an impact for up to th sort of three years. And it's minimizing those things as well to make sure that um, people are enjoying their jobs and uh, and actually find it really rewarding and that they can see a path forward. And I think that's the problem. A lot of people are not seeing that path forward uh, within universities and with within academia. Um 
And I think that's that's the big push to make people uh, go somewhere else. Just picking up on on well points that all of you made there. So do you think there's specific things that could be put in place? Uh, I'm thinking of perhaps help with childcare costs and you know, um, some of your raise that you you know try to work from home one day and that would help with the childcare costs. Could there be something done specifically there? Could there be specific grants so that um, people actually, you know, can get those projects that they want and can find that way forward themselves if it's not immediately obvious to them? Do you think there's specific things that that we as a community could do and that universities could do? Yeah, I think the childcare is, is a is a big issue. Um, and I think removing those obvious barriers, the conditions associated with some of the grants and more importantly, the application process. So where you see there's a, a time restriction, it must be X number of years after finishing a PhD or I must have only been in academia, Y number of years. That's not helpful when someone has taken maternity leave or multiple maternity leaves. It's not helpful. It is a barrier that we should not be using. We should be making sure that funding grants are awarded to talent. That's where it should go and and, and putting on various um, restraints on and who can apply and when they can apply. That doesn't help someone who is juggling a career and a family life because having a family is, is can, can be quite turbulent and therefore those it's been great to see the introduction of more grants and the removal of some submission deadlines on grants so that it's a rolling application process that has made the application process more accessible for people who've got very different commitments um even taking family life out out of that but when we think of life as an academic where you might have leadership roles. You might have your teaching responsibilities as well as your your research career that you're you're managing. Removing those kind of constraints is what is important, and and not being afraid of speaking up when we see something that is clearly going to have an impact on on people who are um, trying to juggle careers and and family life. I think for me, like I, I'm quite surprised at the sort of logistical things that we could really fix quite easily. Uh, so logistics, the flexibility, the lessons that I think, Gemma, you mentioned that we kind of, you know, we learned through COVID. So things like after after hours events that I would love to get to, have a virtual option. Like we can do it. It's not hard. We've we, we've done it for a long time. Make that, make that a, a standard offer or otherwise have them within office hours there's there's no reason why we need to be pushing like that um i need to fetch my kid from school at 3 15 every day this is again pretty standard for most school going children and and, and parents etc unless i pay for after school clubs i need flexibility and a job that you know acknowledges that um and flexibility about how i can potentially you know manage and get that done again it's not hard with virtual options or with flexibility around hours, et cetera, getting jobs done. So that needs to be inbuilt for a fairly standard, quite a bit of the population kind of been having to do things like this. Similarly with holidays as well. We all know, you know, kids are on summer holidays for six weeks and another, you know, what do parents do? So again, virtual options, acknowledgement of that, flexibility around project dates and deadlines, 
uh, you know, small changes that are doable, really doable, um, and not, you know, surprising for the majority of, of, of parents in this group. Um, it's not something that needs to change at the top. I think it's something that you can mention at every single meeting that is arranged at an antisocial time or if no virtual option is, is available, just to make that point every single time until the change happens. Uh, so again, easy to do, changeable. We just need to push for as long as it takes. And I think the other thing to add to that, um, Angelique, is that we, we do need allies in this. So I know um, there, are, there are people who are very successful in academia that don't have families and we need those people to speak up as well and to and to call out those meetings that do fall out, fall over the you know the key departmental meetings that occur on an evening or they will occur just at school drop off time or pick up time um we do need allies in in this so that it's not just the people with families that are having to shout up it's that it just becomes a rule of thumb that we are more considerate when we plan events, when we plan meetings, and we make sure that we are taking an inclusive approach. Um, because we have, you know, it's it's not just about this. Isn't a conversation about staff. This is a conversation about students as well. Our students have got more complex needs. We have students who are navigating a a world which has been got a lot of stuff going on politically. We've got the cost of living crisis. We've got the various international issues going on our students are in a in a space where they're often juggling quite a lot of stuff and they should be seeing us setting the example so that they know that when they do go into employment whatever that might look be we want to make research look attractive right if if they're going to be sat there as a phd student thinking well i have to come in at six and i have to leave at eight and that's it we should be setting the example and calling on ourselves as well if we're not setting the example. I think we have to sort of look as well at what success is. Um, there can be brilliant academics at the senior postdoc levels that, you know, don't want to be promoted to professor, but it's hard for them to stay in academia research because they're not taking that next step. I mean, I started out as a technician at the Institute many moons ago, and for me to stay there, I had to go down the academic route, be promoted to professor, get tenure track. But I'd, to be honest, be quite happy to be a senior postdoc in the lab doing all the lab work. I love that, but I very rarely get to do it now. <laughs> That's what I train for. Um, so I think on the grand scheme of things, we, we should look at what success is. I mean, just because you make it to professor doesn't mean you're the be all and end all. My postdocs are the most amazing people I've got in my team and have skill sets that I don't have. And that's why we work as a team. Um, but if you look at the statistics, you know, it, it it's probably rare that all of them are going to make professorship, um, but they're doing an amazing job for dementia research. So... I think as universities and academic institutions, we need to look at making positions available for postdocs that want to do that role long term. Yeah, there's a piece of work there about raising awareness of what the possibilities are post PhD, and that you know that there is that kind of diagram of you do this, you do this, you, yeah, and and you navigate through to to become a professor, and that's where you aspire to be when you grow up. And actually, that's might not be what what suits 
you know, your needs as, you know, as someone who, who is a scientist, you might want to go into industry, you might want to go into medical writing, you might want to go into teaching, you know, and, and all of that is fine. And actually you might want to loop around and dip into all sorts of things. You might want to go into arts or management or support. There's, there's lots and lots of careers. And I think we need to be careful um, that we, when we speak to students and we're trying to support students to get them where they want to be we're not trying to get them where we wanted to be we're trying to get them truly where they want to be and help them achieve their goals not our goals or someone else's goals and and that that's probably a habit that we do is oh what you need to do is this whereas okay so what would work with you and using more coaching approaches to raise awareness um because and i, I think that help would help looping back to that that fear thing of would, would do I am I going to apply for that I'm not sure I do, I'm not sure what that job is I don't know whether it's for me people might think differently of me if I, if I do that or if I don't do that and challenging some of those kind of stereotypes and myths about academia and, and what the various career options are um would would help make it all more accessible so it's a cultural change thing as, as well because as much as we want to showcase um the kind of diverse and incredible paths you can take as a scientist and what it might look like for you. We need that diversity in science. We need that spread and breadth and representation of of people and approaches and thinking in science because we've got some really complex, massive challenges ahead of us. And if we don't have that, we don't have that, you know, that kind of breadth and that depth of creativity and and thinking differently and thinking across um what it means to be women and parents and and people and communities and societies if we don't have that we're not going to we're not going to be able to solve them so really as much as it is for for students and for scientists of the future it's it's kind of what we need as a globe to really move forward so needs to happen I think I think there also needs to be more sort of permanent roles that are are at the lower levels within within science because I think that that is one thing that pushes people away. It, uh, normally, well, certainly in our university, you only get a permanent position when you're at a relatively senior level, and I think there needs to be more of those created at the lower levels so that people feel secure. Um, and they can they can operate almost like a staff scientist for some time, and they have those in other countries. This role of staff scientist, um, which which is somewhere that you can just remain stable for a while. You can produce results. You can work with teams. You can build your career in a way that suits you. It gives you that breathing space. I think the problem is is that everything is so immediate with with science uh, nowadays you've got to go for the next grant and the deadlines in six weeks and you know one thing after another and it feels very much like a treadmill and I think that if you had a little bit more you know breathing space at that point in when when your children are young potentially or when you've got aged parents or other other things that are pulling you in a different direction it might keep people in science for longer and I totally agree with um, what Angelique said, you know, you do need all these perspectives. Uh, the classic example is in heart disease, everyone thought it was a male problem because men were researching it for men. And in actual fact, of course it affects women, but it affects women differently, you know, and it affects different communities and different ethnicities differently. And I think that 
you need all those perspectives so that everyone's shining a light from their own perspective and you see the full the full picture. You can't you can't do that if it's just one type of person who is within science. So we do need to protect that that heterogeneity and that diversity. That's a, a really interesting point as well, Joe, that you raise is that those there's those positions elsewhere in the world. So in other countries there's there's more of the staff scientist type positions and things. So so is there any learnings and any specific things that, that we can do? in the UK and the academic environment and take those learnings from, from elsewhere. And I'm just going to um, uh, come to one uh, one final larger question before I come on, on to a, a recap. So uh, can we bring it back to the to dementia research for a moment before we finish? Uh, so looking ahead, uh, what are your hopes and aspirations for the future of dementia research? And are there any particular aspects that you really think require our attentional focus. So yeah, I've got a scrapbook of lots of um, ideas to move forward. I just need the funding to do it now. So most of my previous research has been on proteins and proteinaceous inclusions in the different dementias, but I sort of branching out now into lipids. Um, I would love to take like the gut microbiome sort of further forward, but I just don't have, you know, I need 48 hours in a day to be able to do this. So I'm always interested in people, researchers doing that kind of research because I think it's fascinating. Um, we have a large team at UCL uh, investigating it, uh, the gut microbiome uh, in, in relation to Parkinson's disease, but I'm always interested to, to read for different dementias as well. Um, so I'd love to be a part of that. I know nothing about the gut microbiome, but I'm just fascinated and I read it all the time. Um, so more lipids rather than proteins I'm branching out into um, and single cell transcriptomics uh, to look at different cell types that are involved in uh, different dementias. But moving away to, I, I was given a bit of advice whilst I was doing my PhD, part of my PhD in New York University um, by quite an eminent professor that identified the original amyloids. Um, and he said, like, everybody's working on AB to tear. Just go find something else to do. Stop being a sheep. <laughs> so uh, most of my focus now is on RNA binding proteins and how they um, sort of mess up the workings of uh, the neurons. And so, yeah, lo- lots of things to come, which is quite exciting. Um, yeah, I'd just like more hours in day. Really. Thanks, Tamborine. And uh, Gemma, can we come to you next? Yeah, it's such an exciting time to be a dementia researcher, isn't it? There's been so many developments recently with clinical trials. And I guess one thing that I'm really keen to start exploring is the really early disease diagnostics, the preclinical biomarkers that could enable us to get people in clinical trials really early on, way before, you know, decades before we would expect to see the the symptoms manifest. And and so um, a lot of the work that we've been doing in our group uses human brain tissue in the first instance to look for some of those changes. And then we look at that in cell-based models to see um, what happens if we start messing with some of the pathways. And, 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 and we're also interested in how that translates into peripheral any of the changes that we see in the brain, how that translates into peripheral tissues. Again, just interested in those those very, very early disease changes that could hint that someone's on the pathway to develop a different type of dementia, but not just to diagnose the type of dementia, but to diagnose what is driving the dementia. Is it a mitochondrial deficit? Is it that we've got a disruption of the protein degradation pathways? What is it that's driving 
the eventual development of dementia because if we can understand that we know what kind of drug is likely to be most beneficial so i'm going to shut up now because otherwise i will keep talking for ages i'll be quiet it's super super interesting area i could also talk for a long time on it but um joe if we can come to you next so there's a couple areas of research that i i want to develop um so one of them is the post-mortem imaging uh tamarin and i've done a bit of this in a, in a few cases and and that is uh, about imaging the brain before it's cut and then you can link up the imaging during life um, with the pathology using using the uh, post-mortem image that you've collected and it's also a way of interrogating uh, the brain before before it's cut as well so you can get metrics um, at that at that time so that's one really interesting thing and applying that to sort of birth cohorts um, where actually brain donations are being made from birth cohorts you've got then you've got everything all the way through um, imaging during life but you've also got their birth weights you've got you've got what their um, childhood you know um, attainment scores at seven were and, and things like that so you know really interesting stuff um, so that's one side of things um, and and then the other side is just about imaging metrics getting really good quality imaging metrics from MR um, that can be used at diagnostic so multi- multimodal metrics that can be used diagnostically, but also to track disease. And particularly now we've got some treatments that are coming online, but some of them actually uh, cause aria and things like that. So that's an imaging issue because aria can be really uh, distort the actual images. So also providing metrics that can be used um, in cases like that um, to track to track disease um, at a uh, progression in people that are tr- treated. So they're they're the they're the things that I really want to look into. Great, thank you. And Angelique, can we come to you? So, reflecting on my work and as an applied public health researcher, I I get really fired up by the the still kind of mass of of siloed working that we have in dementia. Um, I mean, just looking at my own research where I look at dementia and infections and, and how that needs to come together. And it fires me up not just because there's so much that we don't understand about the interactions between different conditions and different sort of pathological processes, et cetera, but just also because there's just so much that we can learn from other fields and from other disciplines and other clinical, beyond clinical um, disciplines as well. So if I bring in health inequalities and the socioeconomic impacts as well, there's just so much there that we don't understand and we don't piece together um, for people living with dementia. Um, and I guess the major, major reason why it really fires me up is because that's where I see so much potential for the solutions because it's those integrated system-wide solutions that are really what is going to change outcomes for people living with dementia. And um, and also just because we we know so much working in those each of those fields knows what to do knows a lot about what, what works and what doesn't work. It's that piecing together and really sort of focusing on the 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 design of responsive and context-specific solutions and the implementation and the evaluation and the follow-through of all of that that we just, we do very little on. And I find that frustrating, but at the same time, so exciting because I can, I can see the potential. So a lot more there, please. It's super exciting and interesting thinking about the research. And, and I would add uh, one extra area that I would come up from myself is I think there's a lot to be learned 
from looking uh, across other disease areas uh, and what has been learned in those other diseases, perhaps in diabetes, perhaps in cardiovascular, uh, and taking the learnings from those into dementia research as well. So um, I'm just going to try and put together a, a really short recap of um, what you guys have discussed today. Um, so I think that um, a couple of things have really come out. Some things are similar from last time and some new nuggets um, from today as well. And one thing which I think is a, a real takeaway would be that there, there is no right way of doing things. You need to find your own way. You need to find your own way that works for you, that works for your family, that works for your research career. Uh, and that is not going to be the same way that is all the way throughout your life because your home life will change, your research and your career um, will change as well. Uh, and so... Uh, embrace the wobble, I think was our new uh, phrase that Gemma had coined uh, in this uh, podcast five years on uh, from last time. Uh, and there's things that we can all do to to help um, others coming up through. So you talked, everyone talked a lot about mentorship, a lot about working with students uh, and enabling them to see that path. So I think that they would be my uh, top two takeaways that I can come up with from just listening to you speak for today. So we're almost at the end, um, but we've, before we finish, I'm going to put each of you on the spot one last time and ask you to share one short, punchy top tip uh, for anyone who is trying to manage a family and a career or perhaps is is uh, wanting to, um, to think about starting a family and therefore thinking about how they could juggle that or who is thinking about returning to their career um, after a period of leave. Uh, and I'm going to uh, turn things around a little bit and come to Angelique first for that, please. I think maybe two things, because you talked about people thinking about having kids and then people who do have kids. For the people that do have kids, you got this. You're superheroes already just for doing it. And just keep going. You're doing an amazing job. And the example that you're setting for your kids, we didn't talk about that, but that's something that for me fuels me more than anything, knowing that what I'm doing and what she sees me doing is something that she's going to take with her and that is going to impact her and impact how she sees the world and and what she goes on to do. And that I find just such a, such a privilege, but also the biggest and greatest fuel. So that's for you guys who already have one. For those of you thinking of having one, do it again. All the stuff we've been talking about, the challenges which we're not calling challenges, um, the embracing bit. Um, if it's right for you and, and you're thinking about it, it certainly was, she's the best thing I've ever done. And as I was mentioning before, um, the fuel for so much of, of what I'm doing and certainly my inspiration and my motivation when I hit rock bottom um, and the reason why. I do my work and, and want to make the world a better place. Um, and uh, and hopefully that's something that will inspire many others. So those will be my, my two major big takeaways. Great. Thank you, Angelique. Uh, Joe, can we come to you next? For those who have kids, um, if, you, if, if you're sort of trying to make your path, I think just, and it, it feels too much, which it always, it, which it can do at times, I think, make sure you stop work for a bit go and have a nice evening 
go to bed early if you can and it will seem better in the morning it's grandmother's advice basically it does work it does feel better um and you will find a way and that's true whether you're thinking of having children or 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 you've already got kids you will find a way there will be a way there's a path uh you just got to find it thank you joe and Gemma, i'll come to you next I think I'll bring it back to the self-care thing. Um, For those of you who have already got kids, no, it is absolutely fine to lock yourself in the bathroom and eat custard creams away from your children every now and again if that's what you need. Um, And a key bit of advice I was given over lockdown by a number of people was do what you can, when you can, if you can, and learn to, you know, be a bit more forgiving to yourself, knowing that you're doing an amazing job and that you're a superhero. And for anyone who's contemplating having children, I think I said this in the last podcast, but there will never be a right time to make that decision. And um, only you can make that decision. Uh, But if you surround yourself with the right people and you've got a supportive environment at work, and also if you don't have a supportive environment back at home, if you create that support system through interaction with positive powerful influences through TED talks and literature then then that will all help but there's never a perfect time so you should just go for it if it feels right for you. Fantastic and then Tamarin welcome to you last of all please. Thank you Heather. I think for those my advice for those that already have children uh, and looking to negotiate an academic career is find somebody that can listen often you don't need advice you just need to talk things through and often somebody just listening helps you gather your thoughts uh, and be able to work through things yourself um and you do connect with certain people better than others so find that person or people um not necessarily in your in your sort of home team but you know friends that you can you can sort of talk to for those that haven't got children and are thinking about it, I would say just go for it. They are the best thing that has happened to myself and my husband. Uh, they teach us things new every day, especially my youngest with all her limitations. She astounds us every day with what she can do, what she's learned. I mean, they told us she would never walk. Now she's running, swimming, everything. She's just amazing, um, as are my older two. Um so, yeah, just do it. You learn so much from them um, about yourself and how they negotiate the world and how they just go for it sometimes. You, you know, you have your reservations about things, but the kids just, you know, off they go and do things. So you can learn so much from them as well. Um, so just do it. Great. Thank you. And I'm going to add in um, one of my own little follow on from, from what Tamara was saying there. So when someone asks me what I love about being a scientist, I say that it is the best job in the world because I get to learn new things every day Uh, and I think that's probably the best thing about being a parent as well is that I get to learn things new new things every day and the the kids teach me so many new things every day Um, so I think it's to embrace learning and finding out new things and that brings us to the end of this special reunion episode of the Dementia Researcher podcast we've traveled through time catching up with our esteemed guest and witnessing the remarkable journey they've embarked on over the past five years uh, i want to extend my heartfelt gratitude to professor tamarin lashley dr Gemma lace dr joe barnes and dr angelique Mafadaris for sharing their invaluable insights experiences and advice with us all today your dedication is really inspiring as we conclude this episode let us carry um, with us the lessons learned and the inspiration gained from these exceptional individuals living proof that you can have a career 
and a family and remain sane. Uh, so thank you all for joining us on this reunion journey. Keep exploring, keep questioning, keep striving for a brighter future. Until next time, I'm Professor Heather Morseboys and this has been the Dementia Researcher Podcast. Goodbye for now. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support.